Welcome to the 204th episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Rutherford. Stay tuned for my interview with Edward Ashton, author of the speculative thriller, Three Days in April. Stay tuned for the interview. This episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast is sponsored by Guido Hinkle, the author of the Jason Dark series. You can find more at jasondarkseries.com. Where fog shrouds the streets of Victorian England, where evil lurks behind street corners and nightmares dance in the souls of men, the fabric of reality is threatened in these action-packed, supernatural mystery adventures. Descended from an ancestral line of ghost hunters, Jason Dark, an occult detective facing the horrors, the demons, the vampires, the were-creatures, and every other diabolical monster imaginable on behalf of a more civilized world. Risking his own life, sanity, and soul, Jason Dark and his companions face unmentionable terror, perhaps even the devil himself. Join the ghost hunter in his arcane and ethereal exploits, unless, of course, you're afraid of the dark. For more info, check out jasondarkseries.com. Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Edward Ashton. Ashton's new novel, Three Days in April, has just been published. Ed, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Well, can you read the first two or three pages from your new novel, Three Days in April? Sure, I'd be happy to. Thank you. Uh, the first chapter is uh, titled Anders. Uh, each chapter is titled by the, the character who is speaking at the time. So I'll start with uh, I'll start with chapter one. I'm turning away from the bar, drink in hand, when I feel a glass bump against my chest. I look down to see a girl with her mouth hanging open, a bright blue stain spreading down her white silk shirt. She's barely five feet tall with curly red hair, shoulders like a linebacker, and biceps that look like short, angry pythons under ghost pale skin. She looks up at me, and yeah, there's the brow ridge. This is not going to go well. Shit, she says, shit! This was a brand new shirt, you asshole! She puts a hand to my chest and pushes me back. I hit the bar at kidney level, hard enough to leave a bruise. Beer sloshes over my hand and runs down my arm. By the time I look back, she's already swinging. I slip to the side and watch her fist sail by. The bartender is reaching for something under the bar and the bouncer's starting our way. My hands are up, palms open. If I have to hit her, it'll be a slap. I have no problem with punching a girl in principle, but Neanderthals had heads like bricks. She looks me in the eye. I can see the wheels turning. That wasn't as fast as I can move, but it was fast enough to make an impression. She straightens up and drops her fists. I'm Terry, she says. Buy me a drink and call it even. So let me guess, I say. Dad wanted a football star? Terry leans her elbows on the table and takes a surprisingly dainty sip from her drink. She called it a parrot, but it looks and smells like blue Drano. Something like that, yeah. Didn't have the money for a real engineer, though. They even botched the gender, obviously. I was supposed to just get the muscles and the extra bone strength, but, well, you can see what I got. What about you? Manufactured for the NBA? What makes you think that, I ask, and finish my beer in one long pull? I'm not actually much of a drinker, but I'm still winding down from a scuffle by the bar, and I feel like I need to take the edge off. Come on, she says. What are you, seven feet tall? I laugh. Not quite, I say. I'm six seven, and it's 100% natural. I come from a long line of giant gangly Swedes. Maybe. She takes another sip and leans back in her chair, tilts it up on two legs and balances for a moment, then drops the front legs back onto the floor with a bang. 
You'd be surprised how many times I've taken a swing at someone in a bar, and I don't usually miss that badly. I laugh again, a little harder this time. Alcohol-wise, I might actually be moving past taking the edge off at this point. Nah, I say, I wouldn't be surprised. If the original Neanderthals were as douchey as you guys are, it's no wonder we wiped them out. Her eyes narrow. I guess she's thinking about taking another poke at me, but instead she leans back in her chair and smiles. You're avoiding my gigantic friend. I hang out with a lot of engineers, and I've never seen anyone move that fast. Even the military exoskeletons are more strength than speed. I don't know if you're mechanical or biological, but you've definitely got something. What did they give you? I raise my eyebrow. That's a pretty direct question. I'm a Neanderthal. We're douchey, but direct. Great. So um, if someone listening hasn't heard about Three Days in April yet, how would you describe your novel? Uh, Three Days in April is uh, a near-future thriller. Uh, it's, it's really how it's pitched. I actually think of it more as a dark comedy, to be perfectly honest. Uh, it, it's really built around uh, a tragedy that occurs in Hagerstown, Maryland, uh, that, that causes a, a mass uh, number of casualties, and the way that society reacts to that in the context of uh, the fact that genetic engineering and mechanical augmentation of, of, of humans has really taken hold over the past 20 to 30 years, and fissures have developed in society between the sort of elite who have been able to take advantage of these technologies and the, the masses who really have not. And when this tragedy occurs, both sides blame the other, and uh, things spiral towards violence in, in a, a very quick way. And do you remember the original idea or impetus for writing Three Days in April? Absolutely. Uh, I'm a, a cancer researcher by trade, uh, and my lab was actually working on a, uh, a therapeutic technique that was really innovative, uh, turned out to be pretty effective. Uh, but as I was doing background research for some of the experiments that we were doing, uh, I realized that with some tweaking and little imagination, the technique that we were using could actually be put to uh, much, much worse ends. Uh, and that, that was really the germ for the idea of the story. And, and given your, given your you know, day job, as you just explained, um, I'm curious, you know, in terms of the research for the, the novel and also just your basic um, knowledge, uh, given what you do every day, um, how, I mean, in terms, I mean, obviously you wrote this fictional novel, but I, I'm curious, uh, I mean, if you could conjecture or make a, make a guess, I mean, do you think that we will see, you know, at some point in the near future, um, some type of genetic engineering for, for um you know, bad ends or for nefarious reasons? Well, that's one of the, one of the first questions that uh, I'm, I'm asked about this book is, well, how speculative is this really? And, and the answer I give is not as much as you'd probably like. There's nothing in this book that I would not bet a week's pay will be a reality within the next 30 to 40 years. Uh, everything here is a, a direct and not particularly difficult extrapolation from technology that, that currently exists. Uh, a lot of the stuff in here, uh, you know, for instance, I, I, on the, aside from the genetic engineering piece, I, I talk a lot about surveillance technology and, and the sort of growth of a, a really omnipresent surveillance state. I hate to break it to you, we're already there. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I, I worked for national intelligence for six years, and even at that time, 
uh, we were able to tap every cell phone in the world. Uh, that's, that's, that's the reality. That's where we are at this point, and it's not going to get better. It's going to get worse. Interesting. Um, and I'm, I'm curious about your, your own background in terms of writing fiction, because as you said, you're a cancer researcher during the day. Um, how did you become interested in writing fiction, or has that always been there in addition to your you know, um, more traditional science uh, of your day job? Well, that's, that's always been there. I actually wrote my first novel when I was 12 years old. Uh, it, it was uh, written in longhand in pencil on loose-leaf notebook paper. It was 200 pages long. Uh, my father's the only one who ever read it. He, he told me it was hackneyed and derivative, and I should probably work a little harder. Uh, so I, I tried to do that. Uh, I, I haven't gotten his review back on Three Days in April yet, but I'm, I'm hoping it's a little more positive. Uh, but actually, when, when I was uh, in college, I, I double majored in engineering and uh, writing, which is, you know, not an easy schedule to fit together, I can tell you this. Um, but, you know, I've, I've always had one foot in, in both camps. Uh, I published short stories uh, for, for, my entire, for my entire life. I sold my first story when I was 19. Uh, I've been publishing ever since. This is my first full-length novel, uh, but this is, this is certainly not my first foray into publishing. Sure. Um, I mean, you just mentioned a novel that you wrote at the age of 12, um, which your father gave you that feedback on. Um, have there been other, for the lack of a better word, trunk novels along the way before you were able to uh, find a publisher for three days in April? Um, not really. So when I was in college, uh, I received a, a contract from the Loyola Council for the Arts uh, which supported me over the course of the summer to write a, a novella, which was about, about 30,000 words. Um, that, that was the closest I, I, I came uh, before this to writing a full-length novel. Uh, Three Days in April is, is closer to about 85,000. Uh, so in, in between there, I've done a lot of short fiction, but this was really my first attempt at a, a full-length novel. Sure. And are you working on another novel now? What are you working on? Uh, I am actually. I, I, I'm continuing to work on my short fiction, of course. Uh, I, I try to put out a, a short story about every month or so. Uh, I've got a couple that are in the, the, the pipeline right now, one that's coming out with daily science fiction probably in the next uh, few weeks that I'm pretty proud of. It's called Listen. Uh, I also have a, another novel, which is uh, about 50,000 words in at this point. Uh, so I'm hoping to complete that before the end of the year, uh, at least in terms of a first draft. Sure. And what's your, what's your process? What's your writing process like for short fiction? Um, do you have like a list of ideas that you turn to when, when it's time to write a new one? Do you, um, uh, I'm just curious about your process. Uh, you know, I, I know sort of most writers range somewhere from, from being very detailed plotters to being sort of seat of the pants. Uh, I definitely tend more towards the seat of the pants end of the spectrum when I start to work on it, in particular a short story, I usually start with either one small scene or one image that's stuck in my head. Uh, for example, my, my most recent following short story began with an image of a, a man stepping out of an airplane onto a tarmac in the dead of winter, a deserted tarmac. And I didn't know who he was or why he was there, but I had an idea in my head that he might be uh, getting ready to do something interesting. And so I had to, I had to write the story to find out what that was. Uh, that's that's really how I how I usually process. I'm sure there's a lot of uh, you know uh, thinking that goes into it in my subconscious, but I don't I don't 
plan things out ahead of time. I don't do a lot of planning ahead of time. And I didn't with three days in April either. Uh, I began actually, uh, again, with that sort of germ of an idea, and I knew what the climactic scene was going to be. Uh, everything else, uh, you know, I, I really sort of uh, planned out as I went. Sure. So given your success to date with your short fiction and now with uh, your first novel, Three Days in April, uh, what writing advice would you offer for listeners who may be working on their own short stories or novels? Uh, you know, the, the, the standard advice always applies. Uh, you know, if, if you want to be a writer, you have to write. You have to write and you have to read. Um, even when I'm not working on a story or working on a book, uh, I try to write between 500,000 words a day. Uh, whether it's blog posts or, or essays, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's just like if you intend to be a marathoner and writing a, uh, you know, writing a book is no different in many ways than running a marathon. You have to keep in continuous shape. Uh, you have to keep your chops, uh, your chops sharp. Uh, and, and reading is a huge part of that as well. Uh, if, if you're not sort of consuming, uh, at least, you know, two or three books a month, you're probably not going to, to, to be recharging the batteries with, with fresh ideas and fresh approaches. Gotcha. So are there writers or books that have inspired you along the way that you would recommend? There are a number of writers that, uh, that I really admire, obviously. Um, and, and there are some who I really admire their work, but I would not try to emulate their careers. There are some who I admire their work, and I, I also think that their careers would be a, a sort of a good model for what I would like to achieve. Uh, along those lines, someone like David Brin, uh, who made a career as a, a working scientist and also produced great books. Uh, you know, I, I, I think that's the sort of model I'd like to follow. Werner Vinge is another person who, who falls along those lines. Uh, if you look at people who uh, really made a living at writing, which I, you know, I, I don't necessarily see myself ever doing. Uh, I don't see myself ever walking away from the science piece. I've, I've always been a huge admirer of Kurt Vonnegut. Uh, I've read everything that he ever wrote, uh, including his, his essays, and, and I've never, I've really never seen him write a bad word. Uh, I'm a big fan of Ernest Hemingway. Uh, I'm a big fan of, of Bill Bryson. Uh, you know, I, I think my, my interests are pretty eclectic in that in that way. Sure. Sure. Well, can you um, uh, let the listeners know of like your last several uh, published short stories and where they could find those either in print or online? Sure. Uh, I've had uh, a couple of pieces in daily science fiction. Uh, If you just, if you go to dailysciencefiction.com and uh, search on my name, those those will pop up. Uh, I, I publish a lot of pieces with a magazine called everyday fiction uh, I had an, an episode on Escape Pod, which is a, a science fiction pod, podcast, which uh, I was really proud of. It's one of my favorite stories. It's called The Sky is Blue and Bright and Filled with Stars. Uh, it was there, episode 465. Uh, if you want a sort of a comprehensive list of, of my work and what's available on the web, uh, my website is edward-ashton.squarespace.com. Uh, so if you take a peek there, I've got links to everything that I've written recently. Great. And I'll have a link to that in the show notes as well. Well, again, we've been speaking with Edward Ashton, author of Three Days in April. So go grab a copy today. And Ed, thanks for doing this interview. Thank you very much. You know how to book flights and hotels. 
all you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.